to The New Disruptors, a podcast about controlling your own destiny using new tools. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Adam and Tanya Engst had an idea in 1990, not long after graduating from Cornell University. Why not use HyperCard to produce a publication full of short items or bits about the Macintosh? They called it Tidbits. Mainstream Mac publications did exist, of course, but nothing was yet available on the nascent internet, then still largely academic in nature and connected via the National Science Foundation's backbone. This prohibited commercial activity. HyperCard gave way within a couple years to text, emails, and by then the Inks had married, moved to Seattle, and Tanya was working for Microsoft. The strictures about commercial use of the internet dropped away. Tidbit started accepting sponsorships, and the Inks believed they ran the first publication ad on the internet. Meanwhile, Adam was tapped to write the Internet Starter Kit for Macintosh, a book that contained all the secrets for average people to get online, including a floppy disk with the necessary software and information about getting an account at a couple of early Internet service providers. That became a runaway success, leading Tanya to leave her job, and since the mid-1990s, both Enks have worked full-time for themselves. Tidbits is still thriving 23 years after its founding, although the Enks returned to the bucolic charms of Ithaca, New York. Several years ago, the Enks added an ebook publishing arm called Take Control Books, which has sold hundreds of thousands of copies with no digital rights management or DRM protection. They trust their readers. We have so much to talk about. Welcome, Adam and Tanya. Thank you, Glenn. Hi, Glenn. That was a great summary. Great. Yeah, there's your whole life. There's your, I'm sorry, that's your eulogy also. Your life flashing before your eyes. Wait a minute. That's right. Now, I have to give listeners a disclosure because, of course, we're old buddies. I've been working with you all since about, I think, 1998. We were just checking, and my first letter was published in Tidbits on April 8th, 1991, when I was working in Yale after I had graduated. I built Tidbits' current content management system. You guys pay me for work. I write for it. I'm involved helping set strategy. So I'm going to play a little dumb in this interview, and I will ask you questions to which I may already know the answers, but listeners will you know, want to be enlightened about it. So there we go. And our goal is to answer in ways that you're not going to expect. Well, we were just talking before we started recording, and I learned I had some of your chronology wrong. So we'll see where we go with that. The podcast so far, I've talked to a lot of people who are using new tools, new platforms, things like Etsy and Kickstarter. And, uh, you know, PayPal is now an old platform already. Instead, people use Square or Stripe. You guys have been kicking around for so long. You precede anything that would have been called a platform. You started with HyperCard, which is software, and you moved to a text format called Ctext and a listserv. You were working without a net. How have you come this far, <laughs> 23 years, without having, you know, starting back when there was pretty much nothing? Well, in fact, we were working precisely with the net, and that was what you did. I think the difference these days is that we do have these platforms where you can build upon a system that someone else has written that has really piled together all of these capabilities. And back in the day... Those things simply didn't exist, and so I would make the distinction between a platform and a system. And a system is tools that you chain together with more or less automation. And so we had lots of tools, and we had automation. I used a lot of quick keys and macros and scripts here and there and things like that, but the fact was that what we did was largely manual. That's an interesting point, is that you pulling things together was the hard part, right? Is that you built algorithms, you built ways of chaining things together where platforms are supposed to provide you a turnkey solution. That's right. Another thing that's really important to know is back in the day when the internet was a whole lot more informal, 
we had some very significant help from other people on the internet who liked tidbits and wanted to see it uh, get sent around. So for instance, for a while, we didn't have a website. Adam can remind me of who and how, but someone else actually put our issues on the web for us. So we were doing something fairly unique. Not very many people were trying to publish on the internet, and other people who thought that was valuable found ways to help us. Nowadays, people would go to WordPress or to some other system that puts it all together for them, and there's millions of people doing it. In fact, I think that very early on on the internet, everything happened because someone helped you. So, you know, initially we started running our mailing list. We tried it on our own on the on the Cornell mainframes and accidentally crashed a Navy computer in San Diego <laughs> by having too many recipients in a message oh. header. Yeah, the Cornell operators were not rem- tremendously amused to be getting calls telling um, them that something from Cornell was crashing military installations. <laughs> So yeah, so the first we got help um, running a mailing list. A man named Mark Williamson at Rice University let us use Rice's listserv. So we had a real mailing list. For many uh, years, too. It was several years it ran off A number that. of years, yes. Andy Williams, now Andy Affleck, who has written Take Control books for us, um, was the man at Dartmouth University who put up our first website back before you could just run a website. In each of these cases, eventually we took it over ourselves, that the tools became possible to run, frankly, on Macs, because that's what we were running and what we had access to. They became easy enough so that we were able to run them ourselves, which was partly a, you know, wanting to kind of do the dog food thing, you know, make sure we knew what we were talking about. And partly, you know, you didn't want to wear out your welcome. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dartmouth and Rice University gave us a lot of computer resources back in the day. And once it became possible to not impose on their hospitality, we wanted to move on. You've gone through the entire history of server hosting, too. Is uh, and I, think, I think we both have recapitulated that through our respective careers, um, you two and, and I, is that you started with, I mean, like the first... I mean, the mailing list run elsewhere. You had a 56K line up to your house on the top of a mountain in in, uh, in Issaquah, Washington at one point, I remember. We started with a 56K line to a small house in Renton, actually. And that was where I think we started running our web server mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. using Mac HTTP, um, written by Chuck Schotten. And it wasn't until... A program called ListStar came out from Star9, which had also bought Mac HTTP and turned it into WebStar, that we were able to, in fact, at Popco, your first company, to put a machine there and host the mailing list on our own machine. That's right. You paid me, I think, what was it, like $400 to add four megabytes of RAM to a machine, <laughs> or 16, because I didn't have the RAM capacity to run it. And you're like, look, we'll pay you for the RAM. And I was like, I'd love to host it. And so, yeah, we ran from that office for a while, too. And, you know, and eventually we had our own Performa 6400 doing that. <laughs> yes, I mean, what, let me tell you, they didn't do rack mounts back in the day. But I think the, ta- the takeaway from some of that looking ahead or or at what people might be trying to do nowadays, is we kept trying to find tools that we could afford or ways of working that were feasible for just two people or two people with maybe some help from a friend to do so that we could just be this very small organization, but to be able to participate in publishing on the internet. And as the opportunities multiplied, we found that we had a lot more choices for how to put things together also. Yeah, because that was after that, you guys moved to my co-location where it was rack-mounted, and then eventually we've gone entirely to the cloud. And I think that's part of the evolution for a lot of people too, is you used to have to buy your own hardware, you might have to put it in your own server room if you're doing anything substantial, then you could find someplace that would host it for you, and now it's virtual. It's like Amazon's EC2, or we're using Linode. Yeah, it's 
tremendously impressive what's possible. And, you know, I guess for the individual, though, it's still possible to do some of that kind of thing. So, for instance, you could easily imagine someone starting off, they've got this high-speed internet connection to their house, and they figure out a way to, to run some little web servery thing, and then they realize that it's just too much pain, a pain to be 24 by 7, so they move to a hosted WordPress install, and then that's a little blog isn't enough, and they decide they need to do some more serious content management, so that's they go to a full virtual server. You know, so there's still an evolution for sort of the little guy to get big. Because the platforms that we have today are interesting from what they do, but whenever you look at them from the features that you would want in an ideal world, for us it was the features we developed over many, many years, they don't have them. They really, really don't. It's just impressive how feature-poor these things are when you're like, oh, well, I want to collect my articles and send them out via email once a week. Can't do that. And so you end up doing custom development. And we could talk about what happened there is how many content management systems did we evaluate in the early 2000s? I, I lost track. Was it four or five? You put out a call at some point and said, we need a system. You know, we're ready to transition. We want to run everything in one place. We want to do our email list. We want to do be able to publish more easily than we can now. We want to be more agile. And you said, what's out there? And you got a number of responses. And we went with one of them. But there were, weren't there four or five systems that we evaluated <laughs> at one point? Oh, I think there may have been 50. It was way more than that. We actually worked with a consultant in Ithaca who he identified a vast number of them. It actually didn't help too much in the end, but I th- I would guess that there were hundreds on on the on his list of things that could nominally be considered the kind of thing that would be what we wanted. But even when you dropped it down to the content management systems that were realistic, mm-hmm. it was still too many and all of them were too far from what we needed. We ended up for Tidbit's side, the story where we'd been actually go back quickly, we'd, we'd had a website that was served out of a database, out of FileMaker, that Jeff Duncan had written for us. But that was actually a backward system, where we created the articles and the issue, and then that was imported into the database. We should shout out Jeff Duncan, because we didn't have a platform for a long time, but Jeff Duncan was the physical platform <laughs> yes. for Tidbits, as he was the backbone that connected he was with the Apple, yeah, that had everything <laughs> until we actually evolved to our own platform. But Jeff's system, as I said, imported stuff after the fact. And at some point, you know, it just became clear this was not, you know, we couldn't upgrade the latest version of FileMaker, all sorts of problems. And that was when, you know, you said, oh, I think I could build this, you know, something that would do what we needed in what, 15 hours? It was really, it was something appropriately small. That's right. I was coming off a bout of building ISBN.NU, this book price comparison service. I still run it. I've been working with the programmer who taught me how to do object-oriented Perl. I'm like, my God, it was like that moment in Star Trek when Bones McCoy says, it's child's play, when he's reconnecting Spock's brain. And, and then, you know, <laughs> the moment passed. But for a little while, I felt like I could actually program it, and I did. With Tidbits, because we had such unusual requirements, because we had this system that we'd built up over years and years and years, that made sense. When it came time, at this point, almost 10 years ago, to start Take Control, however, well, of course, first thing we did with Take Control was just throw up a couple of web pages, <laughs> static pages. And then we slowly made some dynamic stuff, so we had some includes here and there. And then at some point, we said, this is just crazy, and we need a real content management system. And that's when we actually started using Expression Engine, which was a very quick decision, which I'm actually not unhappy with in any way. The reason why we went with Expression Engine is Koi Vin, who was at the New York Times, design director there, had actually just 
posted something about how he'd worked with this this developer in England who'd done a great job with Expression Engine and on Koi's site, and I thought, bing, we're just going to do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? so a no. solution that, that works. I want to back up one second as we should define these different parts, too. I mentioned at the outset. So Tidbits is a edited publication of articles that goes out both on a website as we write things and then weekly as well as an issue. And that's been the format the whole time. Right, so weekly it goes out in email. It's a curated yes. list. Like we pick yes. the stuff that we think makes sense in there, but we're publishing much more than that um, on the website. And that was the primary thing for a long time. The Take Control Books founded, is it 10 years ago now? Was it 2003? We'll, we'll be at 10 years in October. It's oh where my we're gosh. currently thinking about a, a party for that. I love that idea. I love that idea. So, t- and Take Control Books was, it was an extension of you'd spent 13, you know, over 13 years writing about the Macintosh. You and uh, Tanya and Adam, you've both written a number of, of books that were published by Peach Pit Press and other presses. We were writing tons of articles, writing for Macworld, producing a lot of content. So we knew what we were talking about. And we said, I, if I remember the genesis of that, Remind me if, if it was this project, a bunch of us who had done a lot of books, we wanted to get a better deal from ebooks. It, it, was that the genesis or were you working on this on your own? I think probably everyone who got started and was one of the initial players in Take Control had a different motivation. So one piece of motivation was for me, I was contracting with Peach Pit Press at the time to edit books for Lisa Brennis about Final Cut Pro. And Lisa had a huge challenge because she wanted to write these like thousand page books but she was under enormous time pressure to get the books done. Because the books were so big, she would have, you know, 80% of the book done, just not the rest of it. So it couldn't be printed and sent off to Barnes and Noble and Borders and all the rest. So I kept saying, well, why don't we just take what's done, make a PDF, stick it on the internet and start selling it? That would make a lot of sense. But Peach Pit Press being, you know, a grown-up company with its own policies and procedures was not able to act on that idea. But I kept complaining about that at home. Uh, so that was something that Adam and I were, were thinking about quite a lot. I was lot. thinking of simultaneous origin, but we had been talking about it a little bit. Is There was a group of authors, in uh, many of us in Seattle, but elsewhere, and I, I don't know if you were CC'd on those discussions, but maybe it was oh, a yeah. couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was two or three years before. As we, we said, could we start an author's co-op where we could, the focus was on the authors not getting all the money, but a way in which there would be no advances, but we could sell e-books. We wouldn't go through all this e-commerce stuff. We'd just sell stuff directly. We wouldn't put DRM on it. We'd roll with the punches. But in the end, I think what came out of that was it's feasible, but somebody has to be the grown-up. Somebody has to be the boss, has to invest capital and time and take more risk and be the publisher. So a bit of time passed, and then uh, Tentate Control seemed to meet both your needs and a number of the authors involved in that discussion, including myself. Right. And then another really key piece for Take Control was this was starting to get to be the point where you could – be a very tiny company without lawyers and accountants and all kinds of people like that. And you could have a shopping cart on the internet. Shopping carts existed before then, but they were, it was all ponderous, right? It was so complicated. You had to hire a programmer to build the back end to let you talk to a shopping cart. So, so what I would actually like to point out at this point is that take control has in many ways recapitulated exactly what tidbits had to do (laughs) and what publications have had to do. So with tidbits, we started out with systems where we, we chained tools together. And when it came time to come up with the capabilities of Take Control, we actually did exactly the same thing. We said, well, 
Tanya knows how to make word run rings around anything else. And look, there are now e-commerce carts, and PDF is ubiquitous. Everyone has a PDF reader, thanks to Preview and Acrobat Reader. And so we can now do this. But there was no system. I mean, there was no platform. There was just what we could create as a system. And in fact, that's actually still true that this is one of my big laments, which is that we still have a system. It's now using pages, and we're now putting out EPUB and Mobi as well as PDF, but it's still a system, not a platform. And I've been looking at platforms, but the platforms in the book publishing world are frankly pretty primitive at this point still. Oh, yeah. And you know, uh, Serenity Caldwell, who works for Macworld and is their sort of uh, lead ebook publishing person at this point, she gave a presentation at the Singleton Du conference last October, which at some point, I hope in the near future, there's a bunch of things I want to refer people to, even though it was a conference about Mac and iOS development, ostensibly. There's so many broad points to be made. And her talk was about the various chains, these system chains, like you discuss, that Macworld has gone through. And they have resources, they have designers, and they, you know, there's a lot of people there who can have different hands on it, as opposed to us, where we're sort of, we're not shoestringy, but we have to devote our time to making these things happen. And, and Serenity went through, it's like, well, originally we did this, it's this five-part thing, and then this didn't work, the design is crazy, then we switched to this, this, and she mm-hmm. goes through, they've had, I think, five different systems, and there's no one book publishing platform, no one piece of software that actually achieves really anything that's, I mean, they're getting closer, but it's not what you want to publish in multiple formats the way you do. That's right. When we started the Take Control series, really all we were worried about was making a good PDF. And we worried a little bit about what would happen if you printed the PDF. But we had no thoughts about EPUBs or Mobis at all because they really hardly existed. And as time went along, it became clear that we could not ignore Mobis or EPUBs at all. And in fact, we probably ought to be worrying more about the EPUBs and Mobis than the PDF. And we, at this point, we sure hope the book will print, but we don't put any special particular thought into it. But the point being that to take one blob of content and publish it as a PDF and an EPUB and a Mobi is very challenging, just like Serenity at Macworld was running into. You have to piece together a lot of different tools right now. If there was a platform where you could just stuff your (laughs) Word document in or your Pages document or, frankly, any WYSIWYG word processor with editing tools and pull out PDFs, EPUBs, and Mobis, people would be lining up with $1,000 bills to buy this Let's thing. back up one second for listeners who the Mobi format and the EPUB format, everyone should know what PDF is. We've been using Acrobat for decades. But so Kindle came out in about 2006, 2007 period. And now we have, it seems like 2,000 e-readers. What does Mobi do and what does EPUB do in those worlds? So Mobi is the format actually is a bought by Amazon, a company called Mobi Pocket. And it's the format that you can use to create a book that will be readable on all Kindles. Amazon has come out with a new format called KF8 or Kindle Format 8, which is far, far more capable. Mobi is, frankly, truly pitiful. It is it is an astonishingly poor format. It's about the level of HTML2. Can't even do tables, for goodness sake. Was it designed for the Palm Pilot or yes. something? Yeah, that's it was designed what I was for okay. the Palm Pilot. <laughs> okay. And so it's just, it's it's insanely bad. But KFA is, uh, my understanding is that it won't be able to, dis- you won't be able to display it on older Kindles because they just don't have the capabilities. So you got another format issue coming up at some point there. EPUB is an open standard done by the um, Open Document Publishing for I- OPF. I can never quite remember their full name. 
it is basically best thought of as a website inside a zip file. Mm. That it's HTML files and CSS file mm. and images and all that nicely compressed up in a zip file with a special little MIME type so it doesn't look like a zip file looks like an EPUB. And that's pretty cool because you, do, you can do some pretty interesting things in EPUB, but it's also not um, not fabulous in the sense that we're starting to go back to the browser wars of the 90s where different browsers can do different things. Different EPUB readers can do different things. And so you've got all of these issues with whether or not iBooks will be able to display it on your Nook will be able to display it and who knows what else. So books are really recapitulating a whole bunch of the history of the internet and the web in a lot of ways. I talked to Evan Ratliff of The Atavist uh, just a few weeks ago and that was one of their things is they wanted to create you know this uh, long form nonfiction publication and they found there was no solution. So they had to build a solution and they wanted their solution to be able to output in all these different formats. So they, instead of, since the tools didn't do it, they built their own tool, which then has now become a platform. One of the platforms that tries to output as an app, as EPUB, as Mobi, as cells in the Kindle store and all that. And it feels like everyone is having to reinvent, as you say, there's the browser wars. So you can't rely that an EPUB can be read the same way everywhere. But EPUB was supposed to be a way to level the playing field, right? That we could all produce our books. And it, sort of to the point of this podcast in general is an author or a publisher who wants to take things in their own hands, the ostensible thing was, oh, well, you'll create EPUB and that'll just work everywhere. And it hasn't turned out that way at all. Right. And just to mention the big fact of EPUB is there is not an excellent and there is also not a fairly good EPUB reader to read with on the Macintosh. So, one of the reasons why early ebook publishers like the Take Control series were able to be successful fairly easily was we had only one format to concern ourselves with, the PDF. If you couldn't get a PDF running on your computer, you probably had a, a really odd computer, and we just didn't worry about it. But for us, because a lot of our content area is about the Macintosh, we, we need our books to, to look good on the Mac. And so that's another hole in the system. Have we been expecting all along that since Apple announced the iBookstore and then iBooks for iOS, we've been expecting maybe iBooks? for we're not Mac OS 10, right? I mean, yeah, we've been expecting uh, we're expecting it in support and preview forever, but two years, but, three years. Yeah. But I will say that the Atavist isn't actually I'm glad you brought it up in some ways because I evaluated their system. It's a complete non-starter for us. Um, and this is exactly what we saw with content management systems, which is for instance, the Atavist can't do user-defined custom styles. You can't create internal links within a book. It's a very awkward interface for creating external links to websites. There's no change tracking, no editorial commenting, no versioning, extremely weak PDF support. The Atavist did what they wanted it to do, mm-hmm. not what anyone else wants it to do necessarily. This is exactly the platform problem. Is people don't make platforms for others, they make them for themselves. I joked about this with Evan, and I've joked about this with a lot of people, is we started down that path at Tidbits, and I think everyone starts down that path. No one wants to create a content management system. No one wants to build a CMS. No one no. wants to build the publishing backend. And then 
if you want what you want to do, you do, you, you do it. That's why I mean, I've written a CMS. I didn't want to do it, but we, you know, I did it against my will. You forced me to write one, but, but it's <laughs> true because it was an incredibly slippery soap. We're like, well, let's see if we can make it easier for us to write our articles and then we can produce the list from it. And then it was, well, you know, once we have the articles, what if we had a management interface? Once we have a management interface, really this should drive the, and it's like, oh, it's a CMS, but we had to because <laughs> nothing did what was working for us. We had, we had a reverse engineer a CMS from what was bringing us in, you know, frankly, money and pleasure. Like we enjoy doing what we're doing, but we also had this sponsorship model and then later, you know, some advertising, but really tidbits has always been driven by this goodwill factor. And a lot of systems are not built around the notion of sponsorship or even having a set of articles and a set of issues that are separate. And actually the person who I am occasionally jealous of in this regard is John Gruber with Daring Fireball, Mm -hmm. because he has he set up his model to basically be a guy blogging, and he has never gone beyond that. All he has to do is make sure his site stays up. He just has to scale capability there. He doesn't add any features ever. He doesn't have commenting. He doesn't have email. He doesn't have. He, he doesn't do anything else. It's just still a guy blogging, and and as I said, I'm just so jealous that he can keep it restricted to that because it's got to make life so much yeah. easier when you don't do that kind and of stuff. There are some people for whom WordPress, you know, some of the other content management systems out there, yeah, Drupal for, Expression Dru- Engine. All yeah, that. I mean, I think the Economist uses Drupal in the back end in a highly customized form. Right? We use Expression Engine. There are these solutions out there that people customize like crazy, but you can't just, for some people, you can get WordPress, you install a theme, you start blogging, you create some pages and you create posts and it's actually enough for them. But when we get beyond that basic thing, like let's say we want to do e-commerce integration as we do, then what do you do? You hire programmers. And, um, you know, that's something we came to at Tidbits. I think it might be a good, this might be a good juncture to talk about that is there was this whole financial part we sort of have walked around in the conversation so far is this is a going concern. This is your guy's source of income. It's part of my source of income. There are now an extended number of probably 30 people who get some amount of royalty or payment for their involvement with Tidbits as uh, staffers or take control as writers and the royalties they get from it. So when the internet was young, money was not allowed, right? It was non-commercial. <laughs> well, and then, when the internet was young, I had a job. <laughs> you, you worked at Microsoft on Word, on Word support, Microsoft Word support. And you had a job and this was a side effort. But then suddenly this change happens. Like, hey, we could do something commercial. And Tidbits was one of the first, maybe the first, right? You think it's the first advertising on the internet as such. No one has ever come up with an example that comes before us. The closest is Tim O'Reilly, who claims uh, claims that title for their GNN, Global Network Navigator. Yes. But that was in 93, and we started ours in 92. To, to clarify this whole thing, I had a job at Microsoft, and Adam didn't have a job, but he was doing all kinds of great productive things. He was doing a lot of housework, and he was... <laughs> Which was really great. And he was spending a fair amount of time on tidbits. And tidbits also periodically seemed to require that he purchase new computers and things. And I kind of felt, and I think Adam felt as well, Adam is a very industrious person who likes to contribute to things, felt that it it wasn't really quite okay if tidbits was effectively his part-time job, but it made no money. Mm -hmm. So we started to think about what could be done about that. And our first ads in tidbits were very much modeled 
after, say, NPR, where someone sponsors a show on NPR, and NPR's ads or sponsorships have gotten a little more ad-like over the ensuing decades. This is partly to skirt the issue of commercialization, right? Because sponsorship was different than advertising, I think, right? right? So it was really, okay, you'll pay us some money. We'll let you put some content, you know, in our product, in our newsletter, and you're also going to do some nice things for our readers. So like, look, just for example, you can put up an FTP URL so readers can download your price sheet. Because at the time, none of our sponsors really had websites at all. I don't think they're really... Yeah, because at the time, it was before you could have before a website. Web, and web was really right. 94 almost, maybe 93 yeah. a little bit, but Gopher in 93. Really 94, 95 before even big companies started to get little bits of websites. Yeah. yeah. So we could put FTP URLs to information about our sponsors right in our newsletter. Tell that to this address to get more information. (laughs) Well, yeah, pretty much. That was Powell's first system, was Telnet-based book purchasing. So we always had the idea of how can we do this so Adam makes enough money that he can justify not having a real job, (laughs) and how can we make it a win for our readers so we're hopefully putting something in there that at least some of them would actually really want to know about it. And also for the people giving us money, how can we make it worthwhile for them? So it was always a question of finding a balance there. And you folks had a mix of stuff too. It's like once Tidbit started taking sponsorship, and then at some point that started to accelerate, so it became an actually a livable amount of money as you did more work and you could bring in other people. Yeah. But you also, I was going to say, you also had... Adam happens to have also written a best-selling book about the internet around about that time. That's interesting is that Tidbit says at some level, Tidbits has has sometimes been a loss leader for you, or it's been subsidized by other parts of what you do because it's an integral part of having an audience that you can talk to, right? Yeah. Basically, Tidbits has made everything possible for us. Mm -hmm. And Tidbits itself, if we actually calculated the amount of money we've earned from Tidbits exactly, I would guess that we're talking, you know, not even minimum wage um, in in a lot of years. (laughs) Over the full, right, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, some years have been better, some years have been worse, whatever. But basically, it was, you know, largely because of Tidbits that I was offered the chance to write Internet Starter Kit for Macintosh. And, you know, that after all, you know, versions and editions and everything sold like 600,000 copies. So that was absolutely huge. And that was the the thing that gave us some of the comfort level with actually hiring people for the first time, which actually wasn't Jeff Duncan. Then, you know, much later in 2003, starting Take Control was only possible because we had the 50,000 plus person audience of tidbits to talk to. I was talking to Jim Kudall uh, not very long ago. It's on, a, on, I think, the podcast that will have aired the previous week, in fact, who was one of the people behind Field Notes and the DEC Advertising Network. And we were talking about names. And one of the things that I remember is, you guys may recall, I've worked not directly in direct mail, but the Thunder Lizard Productions, the conference business, oh, they, sure. you know, they were founded in the early 90s, and they became masters of list management. And I think nobody – I mean, if you're in the direct mail business, which still exists today, you know about it, it was a much more main mainstream thing in businesses 10 or 15 years ago before I would say that take control period because you hit take control right after the inflection point started for broadband and for internet access where it suddenly went from 
a lot of people having dial-up, but not a majority, and some people having broadband too, a majority of Americans having broadband access. And we used to, at Thunder Lizard, I was only tangentially involved in watching this, but they would have to go out and buy lists from different magazines and print publications when print publications were still big in order to get enough people to get a yield when they sent out 100,000 pieces that they could get 2,000 people to register for a conference or whatever they're looking for. So the inflection point you guys hit, and I, I wonder how obscure this sounds now to people today if it's even a thing. Oh, you had a list with tens of thousands of people on it, well-disposed to you, self-selected, demographically known, where you didn't do anything <laughs> in a marketing fashion to get those people on a list. Yep, precisely. And, and I think that's actually really the key to take control and to any small publisher at this point, that you have to, and forgive the corporate speak, you have to own your audience that you cannot be selling through bookstores, selling through channels, letting other people be the entity with whom a customer has a relationship. Because you just you're 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 at their mercy then. <laughs> and and you don't need them. That's the thing is is the internet it disintermediates. You can go direct now. And you know so we, we direct marketing sometimes has this kind of a almost a, a negative connotation or a shady connotation. But all it really means is is that instead of going to the bookstore, you go to the publisher. Yeah, this is the point of this podcast, is that exact mission. But where I come from, why I started this podcast is I felt like there was a transition. It's something you guys developed for yourself piece by piece. There was a transition from what I've been calling something like thick intermediators or gatekeepers versus thin ones. And the thin ones, they don't want to own your customers. So a thick one is like eBay and a thin one is like Etsy. Mm -hmm. And I know they have different purposes. eBay sells, you know, a hundred times the merchandise, all that gap is now uh, closing. And Etsy has a specific thing of homemade items, handmade items, and vintage items. So they have a much more narrow focus. But Etsy wants 3.5% flat rate from each sale. They charge you 20 cents for listing. Their model is so simple. It's so straightforward. And they have such a huge audience. Or you look at, uh, say, the way that Kickstarter works, the percentage it takes versus any other method that there was before this to raise money. These companies want a tiny slice, and Kickstarter, for instance, doesn't have its own social network. They don't want to own the customer. And I think that you all realize that a long time ago, because everything was built piece by piece, that you had to have a relationship with your audience directly. You couldn't put an intermediary in the in the middle there because then you wouldn't be able to do what you wanted to do. I'm sort of pondering what I know about Etsy and Kickstarter and, and I think or Square they, even. Square is a good yeah. example because of the fees that used to come out for you know in person presentment of credit cards was huge and a pain. And instead you have an outfit that's like it's two point five percent or whatever it is. Oh Square is excellent. what I'm pondering is is that there have been book publishing systems along these lines. Lulu comes to mind, Smashwords, maybe. Well, Lulu is a great example, and we should highlight them, because they've always been a... It was, wasn't that founded by the Red Hat Red Hat founder. guy. But, but Lulu's, yeah. Lulu's, Lulu owns your customer. I mean, Lulu mm-hmm. is actually a total counterexample to this. Oh, that's interesting. They made it easy to publish, but they didn't make it easy to... made it easy for you to get stuff to your audience, but not to own your audience. Right, precisely. It's much easier to help someone put a few tools together that they need to complete some kind of creative process, like helping them take their manuscript and turn it into a published ebook or helping someone take their awesome leather crafted notebooks and get them sold to customers. But the more challenging part is aggregating the audience. And Etsy manages to do that because 
if you're an Etsy kind of person, once you've shopped a few times on Etsy, you know you want to do a lot of your gift buying on Etsy. So they're able to create an audience. But the audience of, say, people who want to read books... That's too broad. I would actually argue also that the difference on Etsy is is that, and we've, we bought things on Etsy on a, co- on a number of occasions, so, you know, five, four or five anyway, is that you don't go back to the same person. Ah, right. That, you know, you're, you're yeah, never yeah. going to want more than a couple of anything, even if it's handcrafted and beautiful, whereas we have people who own 50, 60, 100 of our books because we're producing multiples of the content that people want to read and therefore it's very very important to us to keep them coming back because it's a whole lot easier to sell to a current customer who already likes you and knows you than to someone new when the clue train manifesto came out more than many more than 12 10 years ago oh yeah i read it i mean i remember when it came out online as like 95 theses and i said God, Tidbits is already doing most of this stuff. Like, because they were like, how do you, because you were never a corporation. It was, how do you talk with a human voice? How do you create a bazaar instead of a, you know, a gatekeeping thing? You guys have always talked to your readers. Your readers are, and you meet your readers. You go to Macworld, um, iWorld Expo and meet people in person. You've always been approachable. You've never been. We reply to our email. Yeah, exactly. No matter, wait, Joe, Joe Kissel, a frequent contributor to Tidbits, probably the most prolific writer of Take Control books and the, probably the biggest earner from them too because of mm-hmm. the topics he's picked. Joe has a problem, which is that Joe wants to and feels obliged to answer what seems like hundreds of emails a month, maybe per week from readers because he writes about things that are really critical to them. Now I'm number two or four or something on that list. And I still get, I don't know, I get 10 plus emails a week from tidbits or take control readers. And I reply to all of them too. I feel like we've built up an audience sometimes one by one. And over time, that's tens of thousands of people. Right. And of course it's, it's a virtuous circle for us because we happen to be writing about technology and we're trying to help people use it. So as much as just Glenn, when you're serving as author, you maybe didn't need to answer 10 messages in a week to accomplish this, but probably two or three of those messages inform your own knowledge of the topic. And if you come back and write an article for Tidbits about it or write another book, you're going to do a better job and better understand the audience because you've actually had a chance to interact with this them. This is true. And the audience is loyal because they tell, I mean, they tell two friends and they tell two friends, but I can't tell you how many emails you've gotten these same ones where people say, thank you so much for answering. I never thought I'd get an answer. And I've written other people at times and gotten just a short reply or whatever. And I'm thinking this is part of the model on the take control on the tidbit side. You're compensating me in part to write and to interact with readers and on the take control side, I'm being paid per unit. If someone buys my book, I'm thinking you get $5 of my time. <laughs> I'll be happily. And on average, I'll give you 20 or 30 because most people don't write. So that's, that's one of those things too, where I feel like because I'm being well compensated on the ebook side, I mean, we could talk about that too. Because uh, I mean, that was one of the things I think that was unique at the time and still is pretty unusual in the bigger publishing picture is your original deal was 50% after charging other expenses. So on a $10 book, I could make $4 and something 
a piece. And even though I might sell a tenth as many ebooks as I would print books, I often make more money or I make much more money per hour invested into it. And I would actually argue at this point that you might not even sell a tenth. You might sell more like half or as That's, many. <laughs> yeah. Well, the print book market has, we, you know, you got in early enough, the print book market has been destroyed and there are still blockbuster books, but they're increasingly rare. And it used to be that the computer book industry, I think, had a slower slope than the big head and long tail thing. There were some long tail books, but publishers were usually more keyed in. People bought a lot of books. And even as recently as, say, 2001, before the dot-com collapse, you could have a lot of titles that were doing pretty well. I mean, you could have hundreds of titles at Peach Pit that were selling just fine and had earned out. And you'd have a few that were blockbusters and a few zeros. And then I think at almost every computer publisher that was primarily in the print form still, that shifted. And there's some blockbusters and a lot of ones that never really make a penny. And mm-hmm. I think that the publishers have also changed, you know, particularly the, you know, like the O'Reilly's of the world have changed such that they don't need to be making as much per book now. Their overhead's yeah. gone down because they don't have the carried right. expense of printing and warehousing. Right. They're doing right. a lot more ebooks, they're doing a lot more print on demand, things like that. Yeah, it became cheaper to print shorter runs too. I know for Peach Pit, you know, they used to have to print several thousand books to make it worthwhile to print, and then it went down to, you know, a few thousand and even lower. So that, you know, that cost goes down in the organization's become slimmer. But I think really that split where you all favored the author, and that can change over time as your expenses and effort go up to have to market books, but you were favoring the author, making it much more worthwhile for me and other people to write these books versus print because the deal in print is 10 or 20%, so I think maybe 20%. So I write a book that costs uh, sold as a $10 ebook, and I make $2 from one publisher, and I make $4.50 from you all. I do think that the business model of how ebooks work is much more open to i don't want to say manipulation not in a bad way but you can you can play with it much more in the ebook world and that's one of the things that we like and sort of where we're looking at at tweaking things more because when we started we were we thought we were really fast and we were doing really short books in comparison to print and that's true but now the world is going so much faster yet, and it's being that much harder to keep books up to date. And these systems, these tool chains that we put into place, they're not fast enough. It takes too long. And we're too much at the mercy of the chunks of them. I mean, just today, before this call, we discovered that Apple changed pages in a way to render EPUB export unusable. We have to go back to the previous version, which we have running on only one Mac, and you can't downgrade. I know we've been involved in some experiments, but you know, I mean, I've written books that are, I've written some of the longest take control books, sorry. <laughs> sorry, you know, even a book we did uh, last year, a take control of uh, iMessage for Mountain Lion, wound up being longer than hoped. I was trying to do a book under 100 pages, and I think it was 140 because of the number of figures and the complexity of the software. Wound up, you know, overstripping that a little bit, but you want to be able to do things. I mean, let's go back mm-hmm. to that, the origin of this, Tanya, when you were talking about those uh, Final Cut books where 80% was done and you wanted to publish, are we coming to that point again where you want to say, we want to be able to publish parts of books in some effective manner? That's right. We've been having actually a lot of conversations about that around the dinner table. And I think we're hopefully going to be able to put the tools together to start experimenting in some really uh, radically different ways. We've been talking about subscribers and membership for a long time, both on Tidbits and Take Control. And we built the platform so that one account, it was one reason to adopt Expression Engine, is that one account created and sort of managed an Expression Engine we could use with Tidbits. When, you know, Take Control, we've been talking about 
letting people have all access there for a while and how we'd implement that. Does this book chapter at a time system play into a subscription service as well? It's very hard to say. We've actually, frankly, moved away from thinking about the take control subscription side, partly because we've seen um, with our Tidbits memberships, which are voluntary and, you know, people aren't really expecting things. In other words, they're doing it mostly because they want Tidbits to continue. We've just seen enough issues surrounding those that it makes me a little a little leery, frankly. What issues? I've been deeply involved with this, so let's talk. What, what issues? What issues do you want to talk about publicly? <laughs> Actually, let me interrupt one second. Let's back up and say, so how do we launch memberships on Tidbits? What was the intent of that back in, was it December 2011 now? Well, I think it's the same intent all along. Tanya said to Adam, you know, if these take control books weren't paying for just about everything, Tidbits really is not holding its weight. So you got to do something about We've that. We've certainly had ideas surrounding this for a long time. But I think the, the real core philosophy is that we'd been funding Tidbits through the corporate sponsorships, and that was great, but it wasn't really sufficient. And the people we're writing for are our readers, And they're the ones we've been giving tidbits to for free for 23 years. And in fact, we'd even had, I mean, at some point, I forget how many years ago, like eight or 10 years ago, people on Tidbits Talk, our sort of discussion mailing list, had said, we want to give you money. We want you to take contributions. I'm like, "Uh, okay. And so I set up an awkward system because we didn't have a platform to do this. And, uh, and, you know, I think we brought in, I don't know, $11,000 or $12,000 over five or six years. I mean, it was, we certainly weren't turning it down, but it wasn't really a business model. And so what we decided was that this would be a way we could really focus on saying these are the people we're working for and let people actually donate money to us on a you know in a more formal trackable renewable easily handleable way we did very very well with that we got about 2000 people which it's it's not as high a percentage as i would like but it's certainly uh, certainly pretty reasonable and you know in 2012 really significantly eased the pressure on tidbits as in terms of earning money However, the problem is is that the way we did it was through essentially a, a one-year subscription at Accelerate. Mm-hmm. Accelerate's our shopping cart. Right, just we've been using clarify. them for, for Take Control forever, so you know, we have good relationships with them. We know how to use their systems pretty right, they, well. They actually have a platform. We can talk to it, and we can say, here's an order, well, and they can talk back to us, and we can update our systems. Yeah, I consider them actually more of a tool, actually. We use them like a tool, but they're they're a full platform. I think one of the things that came up repeatedly is we have customers for the ebook side and members at Tidbits all over the world. We don't have to deal with VST, GST, yes. all that Ugh. sales tax. They collect all that. So in that sense, they're a platform for our purposes. They're one tool in the chain. But we can talk. Right. To, they they're sort of the black box of accepting money, and they tell us when money's come in. Yes, right. It's great. They they handle. All the relationships with credit card companies, they handle a relationship with PayPal, they handle security, fraud detection, the whole nine yards. They send us a check once a month. <laughs> That's the end of it. And I can tell from all that they do when I even consider recreating it ourselves, I think, my goodness, you know, we'd have to hire two people and get an office with fancy locking doors. Tax before experts we could- and- Right. We, this is completely out of our league 
to conceivably handle this. And I'm so glad that there is a service that does this. I should point out, too, is that the way we did Tidbits memberships, we did a, I would say, quasi-crowdfunding. Is I'd spent a lot of time studying Kickstarter at the point we talked about doing this, although I hadn't worked with anybody on a Kickstarter campaign or done my own. And what we did is we didn't sort of set a goal and say, if we don't reach this, we're not going to collect it. But we were like, this isn't money that gets you a direct reward. There are benefits, but really this is a I think you used the term CSA. It's like community supported agriculture is you want Tibbets to continue. We do too. You're contributing to the continuance of it and give it these levels, which have almost no difference among them, but give what you think it deserves for the value that we provided to you. Like many kind of CSA or, you know, CSAs are a little bit different. They're, they're a way of sort of spreading the risk, which mm-hmm. is part of what we were trying to do. But I think the other concept that we were really playing on is the concept of the public good, right. you know, the lighthouse or, you know, a radio station, you know, radio frequency where you can't prevent people from getting it, that you're not trying to limit it. You're trying to make it available for everybody. But at the same time, you want to, uh, you, you need to be able to earn money from it to keep it going sort of getting back to a little bit of, of why we're a little uncomfortable with the subscriptions is that you discover that you are you become much more responsible to those people for the time going forward. Mm-hmm. As the renewals started to come in and we started to see how that worked, we could mock it up, we could do it in theory, but we couldn't really know what it was going to be like. Just watching all of the issues with credit card numbers changing and banks marking things as fraud because it was an, a renewal, I mean, it's, it's just been crazy. And it's not that, oh, it was terrible, but I would be, I guess I would be very hesitant to commit myself to doing something very specific for a year with that kind of worry of how the uh, how the money is coming and going and it feels like a even higher touch business necessary than when people are just sort of buying their book and getting out. Something that came up a lot, I know, when we talked about it in the past has been the pro rata thing is people have access, if you give everyone access to the back catalog and you charge them a rate, well, you can't prorate their subscriptions. Otherwise, someone could join for a month, download everything and leave. So then you have to deal with that. You have to deal with people complaining about that, credit card charges, and then the perspective thing, which is you have to feel like you're really delivering over that next year after they pay, after at any point someone pays, you have to feel, and they have to feel that you're delivering the value that's worth over those next 12 months. I think that is an area, I mean, we've talked about it a lot. We might still do it, but I think that because we are a really tiny company, that the take control books come out and meet the schedule that they do because I'm pretty passionate about them. It is definitely a hit by a bus problem or even as simple as Tanya decided to take two weeks off at the end of August. So a couple books ship slipped for another few months that can happen. And I think that that makes us feel like, you know, we might not be able to do a great job delivering for, for a year and we'd feel terrible about it. So we probably wouldn't take the time <laughs> off, but you know, maybe we should. And it's also. A situation where sometimes we'll have a collection of authors and editors and topics where it starts to feel comfortable, like everyone's very passionate and enthused and has the time to do this, but then something will change, either something in the landscape of what we want to write about changes, or someone has a baby, or other life factors, and then it feels like it's a little hard to see how we're going to commit to this. And I know, you know, if someone gave me a million dollars and said, run this company like awesome for three years, I could do that. 
But just because we are so tiny and we've chosen to stay tiny so far, it does limit sometimes the kinds of services or the scope that we can have. That's been a running theme through everything that everyone I've talked to, I think, is I'm not talking to people who aren't ambitious. We're all ambitious. We'd like this to be bigger, of course, because a lot of it scales beautifully. You could We could do sell 10 times the books and it probably would only involve 20% more staff time in terms of questions or 40%, but not uh, not, not even, yeah. yeah. And so there's things where we would love to scale higher. But I keep talking to people who part of this disruption is that you can run a cottage business that does not have to be on a crazy growth curve. You can make a return on your time and sock money away without deciding that you have to make a million dollars a year where everything goes bust. It's nice to know there are other people uh, <laughs> more and more of them. Encounter, encountering that. I was checking out your new disruptors website and I was like, oh, I have to listen to all of these. Good thing <laughs> Mac World is next week because I can you know, download a bunch of them and listen on the plane. I'm learning a lot in the process too because you know I feel like I'm at some point want to be on that path. I tried to do a book about crowdfunding last year and I found that I fit into this interesting place. And I think the place that that book fit into where it didn't work at that time is exactly that split between tidbits and take control that you're describing. It hadn't struck me until while we were talking about it right now is that tidbits is uh, that thing you do, would you please keep doing it? We're going to pay for it, right? And that's what crowdfunding does. Hey, you released three albums we really like. Would you do another one? Oh, you're asking us to put money in? Great. Let's put money in. And now we know that thing you did we like, we'll keep doing. Take control is, it's a mixed bag because every book is different. And even though there are updates, it's all different stuff. So a subscription there is asking people to say, we don't know what you're going to do, but would you keep doing something that sort of fits in the notion of what we think you should do? And on the publisher side, on your side, you have to say, what is it that we do? <laughs> what are yes. we being, what are we every, doing every, title. every year? Right. <laughs> every yep. title is different. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think that the frustrating bit not being able to grow is that there are times when you see these platforms and they just don't do what you want. Or you can see the tools all exist out there. If only you could get a programmer to put them together <laughs> into a platform. Oh, let's not talk about programmers. I, yes, right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't yeah. say that, but like, I'm the only consistent programmer across the tidbits. Precisely. And that's, and that's, just, well, that's exactly and, the that's problem. A, but that's a scaling problem yeah. also, because we might be happy to employ a programmer part-time for quite a while, but very part-time. This programmer would need some other source of income, or we might be happy to employ a programmer full-time for, say, three months to just make everything work well for us for a while. But that scaling, and sco- that scaling problem, again, we're not really in a position to hire a programmer with an awesome benefits package and just everything an awesome programmer might want. So we're in that awkward state. Yeah, anybody who's in that position would be, uh, in fact, already doing iOS apps, working for a company or on their own, and probably making $200 an hour or more for it. So right, there's a competitive market for it, as well as just the need. This is where we circle back around to talking at the outset is you all have had to develop tool chains and occasionally rely on platforms for part of those chains because what you're trying to do, you've defined what you want to do and the software doesn't exist to enable it in a perfect fashion. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's the end. I want it all to be in a perfect fashion. I mean, what's so frustrating about this is that I can envision it. I can see it. I know exactly what I want. <laughs> and the system, the platform, if you will, that I'm looking at, that I'm actually the happiest with right now is something called LeanPub. 
And it's this wonderful mashup of Dropbox and Git and LaTeX behind the scenes, and it kicks out Mobi and EPUB and PDF, and and it's just delicious in how... I mean, they're not exactly what I want, but they're pretty darn close. And when they don't do uh, all the styles and kind of stylistic stuff that I want to make a a really good-looking book, and they said, oh, yeah, but our answer for that is we're going to kick out in-copy files that you can import into InDesign. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's so cool. Oh, wait, is that good? It is. Here's a piece of irony. Before we get into whether it's good and it goes into InDesign or not, I said to Adam, so this company, these LeanPub people, is it like a guy? (laughs) I think it's three guys in Vancouver. (laughs) Like, well, that's not going to be a stable publishing platform. Someone's going to have a baby. Someone's going to have a health problem. Problem, and the other person is going to go off to China to get married. That, that is the history of everything that we all of our adventures, except for me. And I did have cancer at one point, which forced <laughs> us to sort of cancel one publication we're working on. But I survived. And uh, but everyone worked with like someone has right, someone has a baby. There's health problems, family issue. I was working on an iOS app that I'd partially funded for something that I do. And the programmer's wife and grandmother and mother had health problems. And it's it's true. This sounds like the worst excuse. All had health and job problems simultaneously on different coasts. And I'm like, dude, I totally understand you do what you need to do. But, you know, that's what happens. It's it's one person. It's not a team. It's not like the group Black Pixel here in Seattle uh, where they've got a bunch of people and a changing character and they whatever. But, but, you know, then it becomes perhaps unaffordable to hire – at that rate, right? That's the problem. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. <laughs> you know, we've t- we've talked around the I think the history, whatever. The, so the conclusion is, we're gonna have to keep building platforms and chains of tools for ourselves. I think <laughs> we're just gonna keep hitting our head against the wall. <laughs> yeah, say so I think we'll have to keep building the tool chains and hopefully become more and more possible to link them together into platforms. Because really, the the simple fact of the matter is, we want to write books. And we want to write book-like things, and we want to do cool stuff with the parts of them. But we, what we really want is to be for the sort of the writing part to be separate from the publishing part, and the publishing part should be pushing a button. And this is all, I should point out, your, your whole history of your business is at some level accidental. You've gotten to things that you wanted to do that people weren't doing the way you wanted to do, and so you did them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great way. That's uh, follow, follow passions is a great way. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for being on the podcast, Adam and Tanya. And thank you for 20 uh, something years of working together as well. <laughs> well, thank you to you too. Glad to, glad to be on. It was always interesting. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash newdisruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at New Disruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. You can drop me a note via newdisruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.